Glorious. Good. When uh, I was in junior high, mostly junior high, a little bit of high school, I tried wrestling. And uh, there's this aspect of wrestling which is called a reversal. And that's where you, you're, you end up underneath or you're at a disadvantage and you do some fantastic move and you reverse the situation and now the other person's at the disadvantage. I usually was on the receiving end of that reversal rather than, than the initiating part of that reversal. But when we come to a narrative, we come to a story, there's, there's a reversal that will often happen in most dramatic situations or or films that you might see, there's a turnaround, there's a climax, and then, and then uh, things reverse or go the other way. Uh, things are going bad for the good people, and in the reversal, now suddenly they get the upper hand, they're doing good and moving forward. This chapter is the pivotal point in the story of Esther. This is the turning point. And what's interesting in this is... Um, Nobody, nobody's in charge. Nobody's in control of this turnaround, of this reversal. Now, in chapter, in chapter 5, Haman uh, had been to this banquet that Queen Esther is putting on for, for just two guests, her husband, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, and uh, Haman, the prime minister, second in command. Haman leaves high, uh, his, not only was his body fed, his ego's been fed, and he's riding high on the clouds until he gets to the gate, and Mordecai will not bow in his presence. Everyone else is, and that makes Haman feel even higher because everyone else is lower, like they should be in his mind, except Mordecai. So Haman goes home and tells his, his wife and his advisor, actually his servants, uh, what's going on. And his wife gives him some counsel and advice. Well, why don't you build a gallows? Build a, a stake and hoist him on his own petard, so to speak. And uh, he says, brilliant idea. He gets to work right away to complete this stake on which he will hang uh, Mordecai's body 75 feet high. It's like five to six stories uh, above. Well, this is going on in, in the evening, uh, evening hours. Don't know how long into the night. If it's a stake, you know, there's not a huge amount of construction. It's simply finding that pole or assembly of poles to put together and make it 75 feet high so they can hoist uh, Mordecai's body or impale him upon it. Not a huge amount of work, but Mordecai, I'm sure, is there on site giving personal supervision uh, to this preparation. Now, in, in this calculation, uh, Mordecai knows absolutely nothing of this plan. In fact, even uh, in the previous parts of the narrative, Mordecai seems to be in the intelligence service for the king. He always knows the important information, is able to pass on that information to the king, in fact, in one time uh, to prevent an assassination attempt. If only Mordecai could be there 10 years later, because indeed Xerxes would be assassinated by a doorkeeper letting someone in. No Mordecai that time. Mordecai knows things. He gathers information. He, he's in this intelligence service, but this time everyone's keeping their mouth shut. There's no information leaking out to Mordecai. 
Esther knows absolutely nothing about what's going on. There is no one that can save Mordecai. No one knows that he even needs to be saved. He has no idea of the danger that he's in. But Haman and his wife. The king doesn't know. Esther doesn't know. Mordecai himself doesn't know. Who does? Well, you're all Christians from the New Testament. God knows. Now, God is not named throughout the whole narrative, is he? But by the absence of its naming, it actually highlights his presence. Now, um, a rabbinic uh, interpreter, an Old uh, Testament scholar of Jewish descent, has labored through the book of Esther and has come to the conclusion that Esther is a story of the people of God and how they overcome when God doesn't do anything. Boy, you're just, you're, you're, you're far, you're, you're like, no way. You're, you're quick. Well, how else, how else could you, as an unbelieving, old covenant person, make sense of the story? But when we come to this chapter and recognize Xerxes knows nothing, Esther knows nothing, Mordecai knows nothing, Schultz knows nothing, how in the world, how in the world is Mordecai to be saved? And this is the turning point. God is moving in the circumstances. We'll call this sleepless in the citadel. You caught, some of you caught that. There's a sleepless night, verses 1 to 3. On that night, the king could not sleep. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us if there was something in the food. Uh, it doesn't tell us if he's got things on his mind. He, he just can't sleep. It's a God thing. God kept him awake. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. We were introduced to those earlier in chapter 2. And um, they were read to the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done. So while Esther and Mordecai are sleeping, God is not, and God is not allowing Xerxes to sleep. He is awake. And he directs the king's heart. He directs the king's heart to awaken him. It appears that it's not just that he couldn't get to sleep. It appears that he got to sleep and then woke up at some point in the middle of the night. Can you identify? I don't go blaming God necessarily. We'll come to that in another application. But God moves the heart of the king. And not only that, he moves, he moves the reading to a particular passage within the uh, chronicles of the empire. This, this reminds me of another uh, incident in the New Testament 
And Jesus gets up to read the scriptures in the synagogue, and it just happens to be a passage from Isaiah that Jesus is just fulfilling on the spot. Just happens to be. You know, God's timing is perfect. In fact, even in the coming of Jesus, the, the, the text says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born. God's timing is perfect. We'll come to that too. One application that we can draw from this, not exactly here, but recognize that three days leading up to this, the Jewish people were fasting and assumedly praying. And God responded by keeping the king awake. He can move the heart of the king, even move the heart of the king to a place of unrest in order to get to a place of truth. So we do, in fact, need to pray for our leaders. We don't exactly know what to pray all the time. And we have no idea how God might use circumstances and events to turn them around, turn the people around. But unless the people of God cry out and ask God to do the turning, God will wait for his people in many cases. Another uh, application here is even as, as God directs the king's heart, he directs your heart. And how do you respond when you are awakened in the middle of the night? Psalm 63 and verse 6. I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Or Psalm 119, verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. When you're awakened in the night, use that time reflecting upon the verses that you memorized in Sunday school. Verses that you've read during the day Scripture songs make it a little bit easier to reflect upon them and re re repeat them to the Lord. Now, when, when we commit something to the Lord, we, we don't know all the details. And even as the, the people of God prayed, fasted, as Mordecai and Esther sleep, having prayed and fasted for those three days, they have no idea what God is doing and how he is working, and neither do we. And so we can, we can trust God to fill in the blanks that we don't know. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that we can't even imagine, we can't even fathom, we don't even know what it is to pray. We just groan at times, but the Spirit knows, the Spirit intercedes, and oh, well, there was some... Oh, something shared Monday, um, the prayer request about uh, uh, the porter's friends that was to have the heart transplant, right? And the, the last news we had gotten is that there was desperate need to pray for, for it to happen. And by the time the update came, we were still praying for it to happen. It already happened. But the Spirit knows how to take those prayers and apply them uh, 
What, it, what is it when it happens after the fact? Retroactive? That wasn't quite what I had in mind, but that'll work. The Lord directed this whole situation, and five years have gone by since that assassination attempt. Five years have gone by, and Mordecai was not recognized. Now, in one sense, he's just doing his duty. But the king does well to reward those who prevent assassination because it helps other people want to prevent assassinations too. And the greater the reward, the more safe the king is. And he's, they're going through this, wait a minute, you went on to the next event. What happened to Mordecai? How did I reward him? How did I lavish my, my thankfulness upon him? And you can read the, the Persian records of ancient days, and they lavished it upon those who saved their lives. They really did. And nothing, Mordecai gets nothing. And five years go by unrecognized until now. And we've highlighted this before. When, when we go through life and we're, over, we're passed over, we're unrecognized, we don't get what we think we deserve or achieved, God knows. God keeps record. We don't have to try to force it. We don't have to try to build our own platform or make a way. God will vindicate. I don't know that he'll always do it like this chapter. He may not always do it in this lifetime, but he will because Christ is vindicated. Christ is raised. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father from whence he came. And all those who are in him get that same story and have the victory at the last day. Well, in this, uh, God works and God is so powerful. He is so great that he can do his perfect plan, his work, fulfill his promises, keep his purposes without miracles. He doesn't need to do miracles. He can orchestrate billions of lives, thousands of years to achieve his purposes. You can trust him. And even we're reminded that as to the Lord, a, a day is as a thousand years. The patience of God. Well, here is a sleepless night. Verses 4 and 5, we'll call this a summons to court. So the king, as we know, cannot make any decision on his own. We've encountered this time and again. Something arises, be it Vashti, uh, be it needing to find a, another queen, uh, be it getting rid of, of some people group that is uh, subversive to the empire. Uh, he always needs counsel. He always needs people to tell him what to do. He can't make decisions on his own. He won't make decisions on his own. And so far in the story, he always does what they recommend. Always. So here he is, and I, I, I suspect, you know, this could, be, this could be like really early in the morning, early in the morning, and, and Haman can't sleep. He's been working all night, 
King is, king is still up. And maybe Mordecai, is, or, or maybe Haman, did I say that? Maybe Haman just decides, I'm just going to work early. Get started. Get a good place in line and tell the king what I want to do to Mordecai. Or, I, my sense is this, Haman can't sleep, Xerxes can't sleep, Haman just goes in. One can't sleep for divine reasons, obviously. Another can't sleep yeah, for divine reasons, but for sinful ambition in his own heart. And he's so greedy for that recognition, he can't sleep. You ever long for something so much you can't sleep? Just be careful that it isn't an idol like Haman is confronted with. Well, Haman happens to be, I don't know if you say in the right place at the right time, divinely, yes, uh, but for his, his standpoint, he's in the wrong place at the right time or something. Haman arrives there and he can't wait. And this, this just shows one, one commentator um, Adele Berlin, she says, there is a comic misunderstanding of enormous proportion. <laughs> Each one's talking about the same person. One wants to bless, one wants to murder, and they're both in agreement as they're going through. They don't even know who they're talking about, except in their own mind. No one said it to the other person. And they're talking about the same thing, moving forward with the same thing, and totally misunderstanding. Perhaps you know how that works in relationships. Well, Haman has what we'll call a superiority complex, just to fit this alliteration. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, John read it quite well. Hopefully he doesn't have a lot of practice. And I, whom, whom would the king delight to honor but me? And Haman said to the king, The man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. That is, the crown is on the horse's head, not the man's head. If, I mean, it'd be, he's, already, he's already pushing the limits. Remember in the previous chapter, um, Esther uh, fearfully approaches the king seeking an audience, and um, the king says, come on in, dear, up to half the kingdom. I mean, this is just embellished language. This is courtly language. You know, ask for up to half the kingdom. She would not do well to ask for that half of the kingdom. That's not how, how courtly language works. It's lavish, it's opulent, but don't presume. But Haman has not the uh, reserve of the queen, and he is indeed seeking equality with the king himself. He doesn't go so far as to put the king on, put the crown on his own head, 
But it was, it was indeed the crown that was placed on the horse's head. So as the horse was going through uh, the town or whatever travel that, that the emperor was making, they would know, oh, it's the king on that horse. And Haman wants to be identified as the king. He has this uh, superiority complex. And Haman presents a plan uh, to destroy the Jews, you know, and he didn't name the name of the people. And now the king is seeking to honor somebody and he didn't name the name of who he wants to honor. Tables are turned on Mordecai. This is what we might call irony. Well, there's another rabbinic, well, we won't go there. A person's, a person's robe, a person's garment is considered part of the person, part of the body, part of his being. Haman's really pushing. This, 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 uh, this diadem on the horses would be, I don't know, kind of like the flag on the presidential limousine. Right? Presumption. Now, we'll read further ahead and we, we recognize that presumption among your peers or among your superiors is embarrassing. But presumption in the presence of God is condemning. And Paul, Paul warns the church in Rome, don't presume upon the grace of God. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You presume upon the graces of God. Well, Haman is taking to, to, aiming to take the place of the king. You wonder, I mean, there's, that's audacious, and, and it is. But there's, there's a little bit of a wordplay going on in the text. Haman has already been promoted and honored. And the king talks about promotion and honor, but as the story goes on, the word promotion isn't used again. It's just honor. Who, what do we do to the, to the one that the king wants to honor? Well, there is no higher promotion, technically, that Haman can have, but there is more honor that he could get. And so, naturally, there is no one else that doesn't need promoted, what could use more honor? Of course it's him. This uh, parading into the city square is really devious. It was, it's in the city square where last um, Mordecai had been standing in his um, sackcloth, as we call it. He had apparently changed and after the time of fasting and then was working in the city gate. That city gate, the king's gate, is right there in front of the square. And Mordecai wants to ride the king's horse right in the very face of Mordecai. Stomp him in the dirt with the honor and accolade that Haman has 
just before he's planning in his mind now to kill Mordecai after that sight. Well, verses 10 and 11, then we'll call this satirical reversal. And it's satire because the whole chapter is really comedic in a sense. It's serious. This is, this is gruesome and bloody in a sense. It's diabolical. And yet, because of the fast pace, I mean, we've been going slow all the way along. It's taken us 10 years to get to this point in the story. And all of a sudden, things are moving really fast, really quick. The king says, hey, Haman, let's go to the banquet. Really quick, he leaves and goes home and tells everybody. Really quick. Now, hurry, go, make this happen. Do this to Mordecai. Verses 10 and 11. And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes, the horse that, that you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. He even, even names him by his ethnic group. I mean, this was recorded in the Chronicles, chapter 2, verse 23, Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai was not hiding anything about him, not hiding his own ethnicity. He's up front. Everyone knows. Mordecai the Jew. The king still doesn't know what Haman's plan is to what people group Haman's got it out for. Leave nothing that you have mentioned undone. So Haman took the robes, the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The, the verbs here indicate that it's Haman actually having to dress Mordecai. Can you imagine the tension in that room? I mean, I've been in some tense meetings, some, some tense dialogues, confrontations. I cannot even that. I cannot imagine this tension. You could cut through it with a knife. It's that thick. Not only this, but uh, again, some of, the, some of those connected with the, the Midrashic interpretation uh, of the story of Esther, the, the rabbis, they understand that what's involved in all of this is, not, is that this high-ranking official is acting as the servant to the other official and would include not only dressing him and being basically his um, valet, but would, would also mean he's helping him get onto the horse, bending over and letting him step on you to climb up onto the horse. On the shoulder of the neck, that's the image. Right. Wow. And you thought foot washing was humbling. Haman is going through this, but inside you know he's resisting, he's seething with anger and hatred. He is not able to apply the new covenant standard, James chapter 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or Jesus' way of saying it in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Like, wow, Haman's doing that, isn't he? He's doing unto Mordecai the way he wanted done unto him, but do no credit. Now, now this, this seed, uh, what, we, what we don't get here is 
it's even more uh, um, literalistic than just Mordecai the Jew. It's Mordecai the seed of the Jews. The seed. Do we know that word? we know that term? Yeah. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where after Adam and Eve rebel against the word of God, not trusting him and his ways and his timing, getting ahead of him, and God comes and says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What image did we just identify? Mordecai, the seed, is stepping on the neck of the descendant of Amalek. The one who did not fear God, as the text tells us way back in Exodus. Haman is a descendant of Amalek who hates the Jews. Amalek would come up behind the Jews wandering in the wilderness and pick off those from behind because he hated God. And Haman hates God. Haman hates what, what the people of God were used by God to judge his own people. And Haman is resisting the judgment of God. Had Haman repented, God would take him. But Haman would not repent. Amalek would not repent. They are in the line of the seed of the serpent. And that same serpent is even at this point in history attempting to eradicate the line from which the Messiah would come. He's trying to stomp it out and prevent a Messiah that would save the people of God and bring them back into that paradise. That's what's happening. But this image of a seed is really ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed, Galatians chapter 4. The seed who would overcome. And because or if you believe on Christ and are in Christ, you are His body. And as His body, then the story of Christ becomes your story. His victory becomes your victory. Romans 16 and verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We love the term grace. It's our name. We tend to think of grace as that, that wonderful, soft, sweet, savory even uh, attribute. But the context of grace is very often spiritual warfare and battle. The grace of God enable you. The grace of God empower you. The grace of God give you the victory over the enemy. We have, we have one who would accuse the devil. But we have one who is in the presence of the Father who says that accusation will not stick. I've paid for it. In fact, not only will you be not accused, but you'll be declared righteous, justified by the grace of God. Forgiveness, pardon, 
life everlasting. And victory. So again, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verses 12 to 14, a sure doom. Does that not ring with the song we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? The third stanza, a prince, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. That's what's prophesied here. Mordecai goes back to work. Verse 12, Mordecai returns to the king's gate. This is where he does his work. This is where he judges cases. This is where he gathers intelligence. He goes back to work. He's faithful to the people, to the king. He doesn't take a personal holiday after all that celebration. Haman, he takes a sick day, or at least a PTO day. He hurries back to his house mourning with his head covered. And he tells Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, the seed, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Mordecai had been mourning for his people. And now Haman is mourning for himself. This downfall is sure. They know the histories. They know the prophecies of the Old Testament that the descendants of Amalek would be judged by God for they did not fear him. Now, to round this out, Let's just review. God is in control. When you can't see his hand, I think Spurgeon put it this way, trust his heart. Matthew Henry had a similar kind of comment, and I suspect Spurgeon got it from Matthew Henry. In the story, the hand of God appears to be invisible. But in the circumstances and the details, you see God working. Whatever circumstances and details in our lives right now are probably undiscernible to know how it's going to work out. But know Romans 8 and the, the promise to God's people that all things will work together for good for his people. Those who are called by his name. doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It doesn't mean that uh, a flamboyant, opulent emperor who just takes all the little girls that he can get is good or right. It doesn't mean that Esther, in a, at least initially an abusive situation, that it's a good thing, or that God even engineered that. But God turns these things around on their head, the great reversals in life, in circumstances. And so knowing that, we call out to him. We pray, thy 
will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Do your turnarounds, God. And we come humbly knowing that while we were yet sleeping, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Even when we're unaware, even when we're incapable, God provided for redemption. So as we've rehearsed today, our response is, by the grace of God, he's made us aware and granted to us that gift of faith that we would believe upon him. Nothing we have done, nothing that we deserve, but all that Christ has done and all that Christ is in his victory is his people's victory. May it be so for you and your life from this day forward. So, Father, we come and ask that your Holy Spirit indeed would minister uh, to us and apply to us the several applications and truths of this passage. We ask, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.